Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. And I want to get right into it this week. We've got a thoughtful and exciting episode for you today. I was extremely fortunate to get the chance to talk with Dr. Athena Andreades, who holds a PhD in molecular biology and is the author of To Seek Out New Life, The Biology of Star Trek. The plan was to talk with Athena about the biology of life forms in the Star Trek universe and astrobiology, but our conversation ends up ranging to many other topics, specifically the way the series depiction of the Federation has evolved over the half century of Trek's production, the response to the current COVID-19 pandemic and why our evolutionary instincts make it hard for us to seclude ourselves, and the fact that real science can be so much stranger and more fantastic than science fiction. Athena is very knowledgeable and erudite, and she really puts on a clinic here. It's a fascinating talk, and I hope you enjoy it. Just one note, our connection was a little shaky during the call, so you may hear a few artifacts here and there, but generally, the audio quality is fine. One other thing I wanted to say was enterprising individuals will be going on a short hiatus for the week of July 4th and for a week or two after that. We've been going nonstop since January through pandemics and quarantines and protests and riots and everything else, so it feels like a good time to finally take a break. If you're still looking for fun and engrossing discussion of pop culture topics, though, feel free to check out the other shows on the Just Enough Trope Network. You can check out Backtracking for more Star Trek talk. If you're an anime fan, take a listen to Sailor Noob. We've also got film commentary on craft services. And listen to Just Enough Trope for all the news that's fit to cast in the world of nerdy entertainment. That's it for me. Please check out Athena's website at starshipreckless.com and her small press site at candlemarkandgleam.com. And there's also a link in our show notes to her book, To Seek Out New Life, if you want to check that out. I'll see you again on the other side of July 4th. Have a good one. And with that, let's get underway. My guest on the show today is Dr. Athena Andreades. Dr. Andreades received her PhD in molecular biology from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and is formerly an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School and an associate professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. She's also the owner and publisher of Candlemark and Gleam, a speculative and science fiction small press. And she's the author of To Seek Out New Life, The Biology of Star Trek. Dr. Andreades, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, especially at a time like this. Yes, well, it's great to have you here. Uh, I always ask first-time guests to the show, when did you first discover Trek? How did you become a Star Trek fan? Uh, I discovered Star Trek um, when I came uh, to the States uh, to do my undergrad at Harvard. uh, And in my dorm uh, basement, there was uh, a battered TV uh, (laughs) Actually, Harvard dorms are, are very Spartan. Oh, yeah. So, you know, unless you bring your own, I mean, things have changed, I'm sure, since since my youth. But uh, back then, uh, everybody went downstairs for the television and everybody thought about what to watch except for the hour of Star Trek. <laughs> then there, it was, there was no, no quarrel or conflict everybody watched star trek at that time star trek had already i think gone into syndication when i arrived in the states um so i i would not exactly call myself a fan per se i I mean i always was interested in science fiction as a 
all the what if scenarios, you know. Mm. And of course, space opera, well done, space opera is 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 very very beguiling. But I was always fascinated by how much the center of Star Trek. There were two things that fascinated me about Star Trek. The first was how centered it was on biological questions, broadly defined and interpreted. Mm-hmm. And the second thing was that it was the only science fiction show that liked science. I mean, it didn't get science right any more than anyone else, but it was actually liked science. The Federation is shown as a an attempt for good governance, you know, for for trying to get things right, although they do make mistakes and they are not perfect by a long shot. So back then, it was, it was, and in that, in all these ways, it was different from the rest. So since then, I followed it, and then I realized what a good vehicle it made for what I call stealth science. I like that term, stealth science. Yeah. So that's what my book was, and and I think just about uh, you know if other books like physics of they're still science. They yeah. they basically use it the vehicle which is popular and well known as a way to introduce people to real science. Yeah, something that fascinates me about Starfleet as an organization, and of course it's this idealized you know world of the Federation in the future, but they are nominally a military organization, and they sometimes have to uh, be involved in military action, but they're also an exploratory uh, organization. And so really, they, they don't want to shoot at anybody if they don't have to. They'd love to be out there uh, charting anomalies and looking at stars and meeting new life forms. Uh, it's only when they get drawn into conflicts uh, supposedly, that uh, that they have to fight. Well, well, the, I think you're right. On one hand, uh, the Federation is trying very hard to pass itself off as as sort of an enlightened government. Yeah. But in fact, it is military. I mean, you can tell there are chains of command, there are court mm-hmm. marshals. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it, it and and of course, uh, they have their own geopolitical uh, territorial claims to defend or to extend and hence all those various wars whether it's you know klingons romulans you name it yeah but uh, the other thing of course about all this is it they are an empire i mean it, let's face it star trek as most science fiction really is is american parochial Oh, I mean, yes. yeah. it's, <laughs> yeah. it's very interesting to see how each each series reflected the times that it was made. You know, you start off with the gung-ho of the original series, then they become a little bit more tentative as they go along. You get hyphenated things, uh, ethnicities, if you wish. Sure. And sure. it has become more and more, and it has become more and more dystopian as it goes, as our own world has gone from this moment of the 50s when America was it in so many dimensions to yeah. what we're dealing with today. Yeah, it <laughs> it's interesting to see, you know, being born out of the sort of optimism of the 60s and the late 60s, uh, the original Star Trek, uh, sort of gifting that structure and that kind of storytelling uh, to later series. But as you mentioned, like the way 
the every subsequent series has sort of dealt with that question of what does a utopian government look like or what is the government's responsibility to the citizens and and vice versa. Right. Uh, it, it is, it's very interesting. And I don't think that the show, we've talked about this actually on other episodes, I'm not sure the show has ever really tried to reach in to examine that. Um, and maybe that as a stealth science show, maybe that isn't uh, it's it's real mandate, but that that's the part that really fascinates me sometimes. It wasn't original. I think it may not have been its original mandate uh, or its original intent. However, as their science has become sketchier and sketchier, <laughs> and the the angst of in, uh, the angst of individual heroes has taken precedence, mm -hmm. you see that, that in fact there is more. Like in 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 Picard, the 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 big deal in some ways is not that the synthetics, you know. That sentient a artificial life might actually overcome its makers because that is a trope since Frankenstein. Yeah, the big deal is that in fact the Federation has sprung moral leaks. Yeah, right, moral leaks that cannot really be ignored. And you know, in Discovery, you see extended visits to the um, mirror universe and leakage across that, mm -hmm. which actually is a welcome nuancing because. Star Trek likes its white hats and black hats, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's very little nuancing, although sometimes they do things that, that are morally uh, questionable. Uh, like the Prime Directive, to give you one, one example, is, is a really fraught issue, and it doesn't really uh, get, portray them in, in a positive light. They haven't thought that one through. <laughs> to give no. up. yeah but it is it is the sort of thing that an incredibly uh almost naive possibly uh, idealistic society would go let's have this rule this is a great idea and then of course the second oh, yeah. the first race you meet you have to violate it or you realize that like oh boy this rule is tough to follow up but also i think that that as the, there is a, i remember there's an episode in voyager where um Janeway is communing with Leonardo da Vinci. I think he may be a hologram yes. on, on the holodeck. And she's actually arguing about this, like, we shouldn't expose you to blah, 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 blah. blah. And, and he says, do you really think that we're so stupid and ignorant that we not be given these items and then given the choice? Now, of course, logically, that is a, a separate, namely, if you are going to a... All these civilizations, aliens, whatever, are, are very humanoid. And in fact, all the humanoid races in Star Trek are interfertile, right. which uh, is actually, a, you know, sort of a huge we'll get to that. boulder. <laughs> yeah. But let, let's, let's, take, let's take it for granted that this is the case for whatever reason, whether it's, it's genetic engineering, convergent evolution, or there was, in fact, some kind of original seeding but which had to be at the level when when humanoids were around, because if you see it at the level of bacteria, so really early in evolution, each evolution would be completely different. Right. But let's give them the length, the entire length of the rope. Now, if you are dealing with with isolated populations and populations that live in different um, planetary systems, will start diverging. Uh, because of the specifics of the environment that they find themselves in, you would actually, I mean, viral pandemics would be actually one of the great 
greatest and most common issues they would have to deal with. Right. Because we're talking right. about immunity versus, of course, you know, they show that their medical science is doing miracles, especially when the plot demands it. <laughs> I mean, literally. Right. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, they, they, um, there are such issues on top of things like, you know, founder effect and inbreed bring, uh, recessives that might build up into dangerous homogeneity and so forth. Mm-hmm. And in fact, all of these interesting things, they sort of skim the surface, they put a little toe in, and then they withdraw. I mean, they, it's all sort of sentimental safety in the end. Mm-hmm. You know, and much as they as they as they uh, sacrifice secondary characters, you know, all these poor ensigns in red shirts, they have never yet sacrificed any of. The, I mean, look at look at Picard getting immediately resurrected in the finale of season. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's true. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's a lot of toe dipping. That's true. <laughs> Perhaps, uh, you know, you described it as a stealth science series. I also think that it's uh, possibly a stealth civics series, a stealth ethics series. I think there's a lot of disciplines that you can kind of get a glimpse of. Yeah, definitely. But I think, I think you know, it, in, in some ways, and don't take this as, as professional chauvinism, um, I think, you know, when you say biology, you know, yeah, and you broaden this, we're talking about anything from molecules to societies, you know, anything from why carbon is by far the best element for complex life to Mm. how societies form and what kind of societies in fact uh, would be all of the societies in in Star Trek are are human societies. Uh, If you had a society from, you know, let's say feline society or canine society or an elephant society or a cetacean, one, those would be significantly different. And to a large extent, again, Star Trek hasn't gone in those directions. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, it's very, there is the, aqua, the, the, for, the aquatic species that, that makes a, an interesting appearance. Is it Voyager? I'm not um, remembering. Th- yeah, I think so. Uh, there's a yeah. uh, society that lives in like a, like a globe, like a giant globe of water, I think. Yes. Yes. And in fact, those have four or five sentient species and one of them is the aquatics. Mm. And and then, of course, you have the tardigrades in space in Discovery, (laughs) which, of course, have have ballooned to several million times their real size. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, they've made so few forays. And to some extent, after, spe- I mean, at the beginning, you could say, well, special effects were not up to it. Mm-hmm. And this is true at the beginning, but not any longer, which may explain why we got, got tardigrades in Discovery. Right. <laughs> so, yes, uh, it is in the end, it is, as you say, civics, ethics and so forth. But like a lot of science fiction, it's very, very parochial. It's interesting that when you're embedded into a single culture, you don't see it. But someone like me who comes from outside and spend the first 18 years of her life in a very different culture, I mean, the European culture, but still very different from this one, can really see it. You know, you might, it, it's so American, mm. uh, for, both, for both good and ill. Yeah. 
Is there a show uh, or a series that's on right now or has been in the past that you would say does a really good job of presenting um, science sort of as is? Mm, a science fiction one? Yeah. You know, I think generally not really because I actually talked to one of the science writers in Star Trek and I said, how does how do you do the science part? You know, I was curious. And he said, well, we're handed the script and next to where it says, insert tech here. The tech goes here. <laughs> so, so again, it's like it was after the fact I, at the first uh, series had a number of, of well-known fiction authors mm -hmm. contributing to scripts. After that, it became, you know, Hollywood script writers. Sure. So, uh, I mean, the, the, the ones that are sort of, the, the, each, of, each, of, each of the ones that, that I can think uh, of that comes to mind, you know, Babylon 5, uh, Farscape, um, Altered Carbon, um, The Expanse, they all have, like The Expanse has some interesting glimmers of closer to reality, but none of them, I mean, other carbon is, is out and out fantasy, you know, the business of cortical stacks and changing right. bodies at will is like completely out of it, you yeah. know, because, you know, I mean, those bodies come with brains, right? You know, if you, you, you know, you don't just move around like this. It's sort of, in a way, it's appalling. I, I mean, it's a fascinating Gedanken experiment, but it's appalling. <laughs> um, but uh, so each of them had a few nods in some items. Uh, like Babylon 5 had some interesting restrictions on, on technology. I mean, it was a little bit less miracle-oriented you know, magic oriented that whatever you wanted for the plot, you know, conveniently was possible mm -hmm. or was impossible if you wanted a dramatic moment where somebody was in jeopardy. Uh, but off, you know, as I've said in a number of blog posts about all these issues, is science and science fiction is sciency never real science yeah. there are very few people who yeah. insist on writing science fiction with only the possible a lot of those stories end up being feeling extremely hemmed in because you cannot this kinds of flights of imagination with real science uh, real science has a lot of beauty it has a lot of epiphanies but in the end, science is discovering the real. And there are many amazing things in the real. You know, you know, it's more amazing to think of stars like theory engines than think of them as glittering studs in a dome. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's a bitter pill, for example, to realize that it's quite possible that we will never explore other planets away from the solar system. Because we are not made for those trips. We're not made for those journeys. Uh, and the equipment uh, required to take us will require resources that, that we're unlikely to harness. You were speaking about a uh, viral pandemic earlier, and it would be nearly impossible, I think, with where we are in the world right now, 
for me to not ask you about the coronavirus uh, epidemic. And I, I know you're not an epidemiologist, but as somebody who worked in science and medicine, you know, I know you have an informed opinion on the topic. Uh, what do you think about the world's response to the pandemic so far and uh, people's response to being told to social distance and stay at home and the capacity of our medical system to absorb the extra patients? Well, coronavirus is an RNA virus, uh, and a lot of dreaded R uh, viruses belong to that category. You know, Ebola, HIV, the flu, um, just to name a few. Mm -hmm. And and the major item with these is that because their genetic material is RNA, they mutate quickly. Mm. Uh, which is why, for example, we have to have a new flu vaccine every year. Uh, now, it's unclear, so, so uh, corona is of the SARS, SARS subfamily, and those have been virulent viruses. Uh, you know, all, all viruses, uh, if they want to survive long, they have to be relatively gentle to their host as parasites go, otherwise they'll run out of hosts. Hmm. The issue here the issue with humans is that the viruses that are really virulent for us are ones that made a recent jump from other hosts, you know, bats, civets, camels, you know, uh, monkeys in, in Africa for things like Ebola or Zika. And so when they do this, they're not optimized for their host. And that's why they're so virulent. Hmm. Um, now, in terms of, so that that's, the, the side of science and, and although right now we, we you know we were people the researchers were able to sequence it immediately in part because its genome is relatively small and uh, so we know a lot about it already but we are still not sure about why it's spread so quickly its incubation time is longer than 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 the usual uh, it's in the middle ground. You see, the ones that are very virulent kill their hosts immediately, and that stops their spread. Mm -hmm. The ones that are, have low virulence are tolerated until we get some immunity. But this one is in the middle, which makes it very hard to deal with. Now, as far as... Uh, let's now take the, the human response, and I will deal with the government response at the very end. Sure. So the problem with social distancing is that it goes against both our thalamic and cortical emotions. Now, the thalamic ones are the so-called four Fs, you know, fight, flight, food, and reproduction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, and those are bypass, bypass conscious thought because they're reflexes. You have to employ them quickly if you don't want to end up as a tiger's lunch. Right. So he, so staying in place means we, we can neither fight nor flee. It goes against our instincts. And then as far as cortical emotions go, it goes against our, our, our sense of needing to help our families, our friends, but also keeping our life, keeping some control over our lives. It goes against just about everything that the human usually would would uh, of, of of human thought or or action whether instinctual or considered so it's very difficult now as far as uh, 
overall responses go, there are two separate issues. One is, of course, governments are reluctant to to be seen as overreacting. A, because the hope is that it will not be as bad as people as 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 feared. And and there was at least one pandemic in 2009, I think it was, it was an influenza variant. And that looked scary at the beginning, but then it subsided without major upheavals. So you don't want to, but as the intelligence services say, you should see, you should see the things you have not seen Mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, foiling things. So I think the world right now was unprepared, not just, I mean, a lot of leaderships are not what they should be in terms of intellectual and moral stature, number one. But number two, there has been a lot of libertarian economics that has basically cut back significantly on public health. And there has been a rising tide of anti-scientism in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. you see people in Silicon Valley arguing that they shouldn't have to vaccinate their children. <laughs> right. You know, you, there's a rising religious fundamentalism across religions. Uh, there's a rising sense of you should not... You know, uh, you should not trust experts because, you know, there are all these conspiracy theories that are making their way across the net. And things like social media actually uh, contribute to the phenomenon. I mean, before you had to write a letter and send it to the editor of (laughs) whatever newspaper. Now you you, you can blather on Twitter. So, so. On one hand, you know, it means that everything gets uh, immediately disseminated, but everything means both the, 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 the wheat and the chaff. There's a lot of draws out there. Yeah. And having politicians yeah. who, who just felt, oh, well, we just, you know, business as usual. I mean, we need somebody like Willy Brandt or... or or one of the Roosevelts, or, you know, we need somebody, I, I, I mean, if there are even people who I would not necessarily feel are uniformly admirable, like Golda Meir or, or Winston Churchill, but these people had, I want to call it political imagination, if you wish, but to, to, to bear down on this and, and, and figure out what should be done? I mean, everything everything has been sort of lukewarm, and also all this. Oh well, okay, we'll give exemptions to to churches or whatever because it's Passover, Easter, whatever. It's like don't do this. You know, <laughs> the virus does not care about any of this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and 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 you know, uh, and vaccines. I think we will have a vaccine actually in 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 lightning speed, considering the, the total. But it will still not be soon enough, mm-hmm. and some systems will buckle. I'm afraid. Well, that's sobering to hear. And what always drives me crazy is the seeming lust of the public to not 
listen to experts. I, I don't know if it's cortical or thalamic to believe everything you read on social media, but my parents think you can cure the virus by gargling zinc and fresca or, or something. So we're just trying to stay ahead of misinformation. You know, you know there's something else in this, uh, particularly so for the first world. On one hand, uh, there was a, this thing, uh, you know, a lot of it's like shrug, shrug. A lot of these are third world problems. Mm. As long as it's happening away from here, it's right. not has little to do with us except for for the for the ter terribly paid people who produce the stuff that we import mm -hmm. uh, however the other thing that is true for the first world is after world war ii because a lot of things were overall you know there was a an increase in in prosperity and, and you know Roughly spoken, not you know, some boats lifted higher than yeah. others, but but in general, the first world lived a good life, mm -hmm. and there was a fair amount of buffering, both from medical science, there was public health, you know, there was water, antibiotics, vaccines, um, there was some job security, there was some netting, so basically, people could be stupid without consequences. Okay, if you're a gatherer hunter and you made a mistake, you died. Mm. Okay, you drank water that was contaminated, or you 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 got a wound that would not heal, or name it. It's like uh, people who still live that way, and there aren't that many societies left who do so, are extremely intelligent. They're extremely aware of their environment. Yet their life, their average lifespan is still in the 30s and 40s because the moment they make a mistake, they pay for it. Mm -hmm. People in the first world after the 50s learned that you can be as stupid and ignorant as you like, and you could still live a decent life. Mm -hmm. And now we're up against the fact that you know reality, you know stupidity once again has consequences. And a lot of people don't like that. They don't like because it's sort of a traumatic bump against this is the immovable object, you know. It's mm. it's not going to make any truces or any compromises. It is what it is, you know. And, you know, there have uh, societies have recovered from this. If the... If the mortality is low enough that it does not destroy infrastructure, you know, uh, Europe recovered from from the plague, which was about thirty percent, or and but it depended on locality. Uh, the SARS outbreak in China, which was about ten percent, uh, they recovered, but you know the 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 native civilizations of the americas when they got hit by the european viruses to which they had no immunity essentially disappeared you know there were huge civilizations and only now do we discover you know like the pyramids in mississippi that have been buried that mm -hmm. were forgotten and of course they were forgotten because you have a 90% mortality rate you don't have a civilization anymore it's not going to be that bad with us, and I think we will manage to come on the other side. But I wonder if we'll have the wisdom to under to to take the lessons in into account. 
Well, because you know humans tend to have a long their long-term memory is not so good and this may actually be a survival tactic <laughs> our brain you know would like to go ahead and not dwell on on bitter cups but we need to learn as a collective of how to deal with things like this how to be prepared because now with global travel and global in exchanges being also a reality we cannot pretend that we can huddle within our borders and hope that the angel of death will pass us by because we're better different you name it right well, this uh, is fascinating, but I, I do uh, think that we should probably talk about our main topic uh, for this show, which sure. is uh, your book, uh, To Seek Out New Life, The Biology of Star Trek, uh, which examines, <laughs> it, it examines the science of biology we see in Trek, not only what's presented on screen, but also its plausibility in our real world. And in preparing for this discussion, I made a personal discovery about science as it relates to science fiction in space. I had always assumed that a scientist who studied alien life uh, that is extraterrestrial life would be called a xenobiologist, like xeno stranger alien biologist. However, I learned that what I was thinking of would properly be called an astrobiologist, and xenobiology is something entirely different. Well, it, it, I think that right now uh, astrobiology, I think, is is you know the biology of lives uh, on planets circling other stars. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's uh, xenobiologists would actually actually. They are probably significantly overlapping. This, the, the unfortunate thing in this is that as of now, astrobiology is confined to studying exotic terrestrial organisms like thermophilic bacteria sure. or, you know, cave life in, in caves. Because although, uh, you, you know, if you look at the Drake equation, you know, you know, from left to right, the first half of the equation we, we we have so much data for it. We know you know numbers of stars. We know more and more about which ones have or might have planetary systems. We've identified scores of exoplanets by now. Uh, a lot of them are in their star's habitable zone, which means liquid water. And of course, liquid water, like carbon, is the best element for complex molecules and hence complex life. Water is by far and away the best solvent, although not the, the only one. There, there are close cousins like ammonia, but, but that would be for lower temperatures. So water is the best. Uh, and so, and of course, SETI has been looking for, for quite a while, you know, for signals. But we still do not have one place, one, that we can unambiguously say, harbors life uh even you know nearby mars europa which could have a so-called ocean capped world uh that lives underneath the ice cap in the liquid that's below it and the other dilemma in all this is that if we send um exploratory missions and this has already been said about the mars missions the vikings it is quite possible we may dis either contaminate or destroy the life we find. Mm. So we have to be very, very careful about, A, how we organize this. And I'm not even talking about, you know, harboring 
like yeasts, bacteria, or tardigrades, for that matter, that make these little tons that hibernate. Uh, it's even, you know, to give you an example, if you go uh, on a world that is significantly colder, like, like if we send a drill to drill through the Europa's ice cap, it's possible that we may we may destroy the life below if there is such if if it's there by the heat generated by the drill. Mm-hmm. To give an example, it's it's a it's, it's a very simple example, but it tells you how many logistics dilemmas uh, teams from NASA or any other such agency would have to deal with. I mean this, uh, and, and, and you know this. Uh, oh yay! You know um, again, Star Trek uh, did a disservice in being so optimistic, and in basically positing that just about every every uh, world they find is essentially Earth. And of course, I mean, if you, you, you know you film in, in Southern California, and, and, <laughs> yeah, and it's California. But it uh, but, uh, you know, it, it basically m- made people think that a lot of this would be easy as soon as we got the engines, you know, whether it's fusion or a, uh, or a, one of those jet scoops um, that collect hydrogen that we would, or, or, you know, warp engines, which require, um, of course, negative matter and negative energy that we would be set then, you know, yay, we would find all these places and they would more or less look like little Edens. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, even simple things could confound us. You know, planets, we have circadian rhythms and our eyes were made for a yellow sun. So if we go to a planet with a red sun and, of course, just about any other planet we alight upon, even if it's Earth-like, we would have a different length of day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, if you think jet lag is bad, <laughs> you, you know, a, a planet with a different uh, daily rotation length would play havoc with our systems, you know, uh, significantly different gravity. It's not just that it's bad, you know, your bones and muscles and even your, your synapses, but, you know, would seedlings sprout? Mm-hmm. Would you have to be able to have fetal development? I mean, it won't do us much good if we went to all these planets, whether beautiful or 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 bleak, and we could not think straight or have descendants. Should we assume then, based on the fact that you know water is the best solvent and that organic chemistry and molecular biology would be present in the same across the universe, presumably that pretty much whatever life form we encounter, should we encounter one, would be similar, at least in that way, to us. Be most likely carbon-based, have it proteins, be, amino uh, acids. Yeah, I think the chances of it being carbon-based and using water as solvent are high, although there are more exotic variants. That, for example, Titan would probably be using ammonia as a solvent if it had a li- if it had life, sure. uh, because water is, is frozen mm-hmm. in that temperatures prevailing there uh where where the divergence would happen is right after that so so if you could have a carbon-based life but for example what they chose for their genetic material what would they look like if they became sentient what their sentience would be based on uh what what their what kind of reproduction they would have, what kind of social groupings they would have, 
if they would have two, you know, two sexes the way we do for for you know the chromosomal pairing that makes the zygote, and then and or they could have parthenogenesis the way a lot of social insects do at times when resources are low. Yeah. They could be hermaphrodites the way a lot of plants are, or they could be even more wilder. Uh, I mean, they could have a triple helix and require three inputs from three parents. Uh, you, anything goes above carbon and water. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything that you can imagine could be at every level as you go, again, from, from molecules to societies. You could have anything you could imagine. And in fact, our imagination might not be, might not be encompassing enough for what we might find. Right. And in that respect, I think Star Trek should have been bolder, especially when the, so, the special effects could uh, could were up to were up to the task. Yeah, the, Trek certainly bets hard on us all being or all the aliens we find being humanoid, uh, bilateral symmetry, uh, people with two eyes and two ears, and so forth. And they hedge those right. bets with an episode of TNG called The Chase, which reveals that uh, right. millions, perhaps billions of that years ago. Episode, yes, that, 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 <laughs> yes, that biology, yes. Yeah, I, I spoke with a geneticist on an earlier episode, and obviously he had quite a few criticisms of that episode. You know, namely that that's not how evolutionary biology works, and there's just too many unpredictable factors in environment and chance events over millions of years of development. Uh, not to mention the implausibility of hiding a Snapchat message in people's DNA. Right. I, I mean, the, actually, that that was one of the things that a lot of those of of uh, transhumanists who talk about memes a lot, you know, the idea that there's these hidden things in the DNA. Yeah. But it's true that that uh, the dice never fall the same way twice. Even here, for example, to give an obvious example, if there that meteors about sixty-five million years ago had not hit Earth, uh, it's quite possible that that Earth would now be ruled by intelligent uh, descendants of velociraptors, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is in a Voyager episode. Oh, oh yeah, because back then you know mammals were these tiny shrew-sized um, yeah. uh, entities, sort of hidden in niches and venturing out at night carefully when when the real rulers were asleep, and it then uh, there are were uh, dinosaurs that seemed intelligent and also seemed socially uh, gregarious. And there was no reason that they could not continue evolving into something with sentience, except the the meteor killed all, all large life forms and gave us our big chance, and here we are. Right. And apparently so, that yes. happened on so many other worlds. <laughs> Just a bunch of little mammal creatures <laughs> waiting for something like that. But even if it did, even even if, you know, if everything went relatively gently, uh, all species have a a a lifespan as species. So I wonder if there will be descendants. I mean, with us, we have sort of uh, diverged from this particular curve because of our technology. This is a, a significant prosthetic, so to speak, which has made uh, our fate a little bit different, but not entirely, because we are still, I mean, no matter how good, even if we use that technology in the best possible way, we still would have to deal with things like meteor hits, ice ages, I mean, and eventually, of course, the sun becoming a red giant, mm-hmm. oh, but that's, you know, several millions of years in our future nevertheless it's there yeah so 
we if we do not become so-called Kardashian level two, at some point uh, we too will flare and go out. And but you know we we have the imagination, we we have this the the strength to imagine this, and we have the strength to implement it if we want. Mm-hmm. But and Star Trek, if nothing else, has sort of said this that we have the strength to choose the right thing but we have to do this right. it has to be done yeah something that kind of always disappointed me about um the aliens that we see on star trek voyager is that here's an opportunity for us to get out of the alpha quadrant to another part of the galaxy and see some really strange different sort of aliens and for the most part, it's, you know, just a human with a little thing on their forehead uh, that denotes that they're yep. an alien. And I guess I'm wondering, like, do you think that potential life forms from another quadrant of the galaxy would be very different to ones in our arm of the Milky Way? Uh, I think that that in general, uh, if you if you are... Um... It, it seems that uh, the, the physical laws are such that... Um, Especially spiral, spiral galaxies like ours, uh, the quadrant that is as distant from the center as we are, mm-hmm. uh, they would have the same local conditions, I think. Sure. Uh, of course, details of, of planetary systems, you know, is different. Like if you were on, on an M, uh, on a red dwarf planetary system, you would have things like um, a lot of plants would be dark red or almost black because they wouldn't be using chlorophyll but carotenes mm-hmm. um, you would probably end up uh, because you would end up being in, in a locked orbit so in fact you would have one day side and one night side and the place with, with where you could probably end up being being able to live would be actually the sort of the twilight ring mm-hmm. uh, where mm-hmm. in fact you would have to put up with tornado uh, style wind, winds because of the temperature differential between the two sides. Uh, and you might also have to put up with flares from the parent star because th- this type of star uh, often throws out flares. So you could imagine something like a ar- life that has a lot of armor necessary and that mm. lives in a perpetual twilight where everything is like dark red or almost black. So you see, at every level you are introducing you know, looking at real science, you're introducing all these possibilities of diversity, mm-hmm. of significantly different, uh, different um, manifestations of life if it arises and goes through the, the various bottlenecks to complexity and, and, of course, the bottleneck to sentience, and after that, the bottleneck to having technology. Right. And then you also have to ask about sensory apparatus. You, for example, people, you know, there might be uh, species that rely on, uh, and even on Earth there are such, they rely on infrared, rely on ultrasonics, you know, uh, like uh, the bat and dolphin echolocation signals. Uh, a lot of snakes have uh, IR sensors to sense their prey. Um, you know, if if you live in a place wh- where light is scarce, you may eyes may be vestigial or not even necessary. Y- y- again, you know, evolution is not teleological; it's sort of 
uh, and actually evolution is some with the, those these Lamarckian and instant evolution episodes in Star Trek. That's one of the things that it persistently flubbed. <laughs> but uh, you, you, but you have you know evolution basically says is it's us jury rigged as our own bodies. It says well what works right now, what will allow these species to propagate. And, and that's what it is. And that's why, in fact, a lot of biology, if you look at, at biological systems closely, you'll see that they're sort of jerry-rigged and mediocre, and humans in particular are exceedingly mediocre. Hmm. But that's a good thing, because it means that, uh, that that's built-in adaptability. Because if you optimize for any particular configuration, it means you become wildly suboptimal for everything else. Hmm. So you actually want that mediocre configuration to stay with you sure. because it keeps you flexible for whatever may happen. Yeah. We, well, we see more than just uh, humanoid life forms, of course, in Star Trek, uh, creatures like the Horda, uh, neuroparasites, yes. and whatever the lights of Zetar are. Yes, we do. <laughs> it isn't just stuck to... Uh, you know, act, uh, LA actors uh, wearing facial prosthetics. You know, the, yes, silicon is silicon life form is rather unlikely because although silicon is is the heavier cousin of carbon, mm -hmm. its primary draw. There are two primary drawbacks. One is that it is not stable enough to to create complex molecules. Mm -hmm. This has to do with with the character of its of its orbit of its orbitals, and the other issue is that. Um, the solvent for hydro for silicon uh, compounds is uh, hydrofluoric acid, and it's actually fluorine is relatively rare in the universe, whereas water is actually fairly common in, on top of being the best solvent. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, uh, the, some silicon molecules are chiral, and some people argue that they were used by early carbon life as templates oh. or as surfaces on which to build. And it's possible that the chirality, which is, uh, of course, uh, inevitable uh, as carbon can form four bonds, uh, but, but human life chose one chirality, and some people say it may have to do with the, or the original templates that, on which it grew. So this, it's all, this is all fascinating stuff yeah. uh, because what do we see here, to some extent, it forms what we might find out there. Um, but I suspect that if we do find life out there, it may well exceed our wildest imagination. <laughs> and I personally think we w there is life out there. Yeah. Uh, just statistically speaking, and the fact we haven't gotten a signal, you know, to get a signal requires so many things to fall just right, right. including, right. you know, the timing, that I am not discouraged by the fact that SETI at home has not yet clocked something. Right. I think they're out there, just there. I mean, if you th the distances are vast, mm -hmm. and, and frankly, if there is life on other galaxies, which is almost certain, we will never hear from it. It's mm -hmm. too far, yeah. way too far. I always wondered what the uh, the founders or the changelings were made of, uh, like what their genetic structure was like. I mean, you'd imagine right. that an amorphous being that can change into like any shape, regardless of size or mass, would be, be very complicated biologically. But Bashir never seemed all that phased whenever he examined Odo. It was just sort of another life form to him. Like, what was he seeing? Right. 
you know, shape shifting is actually you know a, a, a biologically a biological impossibility and not biologically on i mean physics and if you have that how do you preserve your mass right yeah it's subspace. Um, you put it <laughs> into into the fifth dimension, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, how do you maintain? You know, you, how do you maintain your your cellular integrity? How do you maintain your own conscious thought while you pretend to be a Chippendale chair? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you know how do you and and then all of the the fact that they I, I mean as liquids go I, I think they to be honest with you I think they they based some of the changeling attributes to a fanciful and now long discarded theory that that memory that water retains a memory of the objects that are in it i think for a while it became fashionable among the glitterati so i think that they based some of the changeling uh, ideas on it but of course the other thing too again is that odo even if you assume, if you again give them a long rope and say, "Yeah, okay, we can have a, a life form like this," but then you know he he too is human. I mean, he loves Nerys. It's like this is like loving I don't know a faucet. You know, I mean, it's so different. Yeah. And and the, and the other fascinating one that they never quite went into it because it raises some interesting ethical questions is are the trills. Uh-huh. You know, the symbiotic relationship, it looks to me, in fact, like there we have a dominant and, and, and you know, the, the, the host is clearly, ha- the symbiont clearly has the upper hand yeah. in that. And there you have a, a, a type of, of life that is completely different. And again, you know, poor Jadzia falls in love with Worf. It's like... So, 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 first of all, it's like who is in love with the, all these humans? Is it the symbiont or the host? Yeah. And if it's the host, that and if the host has their own thought processes, basically they're used as a vessel, without quite their consent. You know, there were all kinds of of, of thorny matters brought up. Uh, by the trills and uh, actually interestingly enough i'm about in this december through my press i will be bringing out a space operation called situation normal in which actually there is a species that's like the trills hmm. but it's actually seen without the sentimentality and 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 rose-colored glasses that star trek uses for the trills mm-hmm. and you actually see laid out in much more realistically all these uh, sort of ethical, moral, and social issues uh, that Star Trek carefully avoided yeah. when it postulated the species. That's fascinating. I think t- the show never explores this, but I think there's also a real um, sort of troubling caste system to the Trill Society as well. Like they they have yes. this: who gets to be, who gets to live forever, basically, and do they constitute a ruling class if they're around for hundreds of years and, and this and that? Absolutely. It's it's it's. I mean, again, you you see you see uh, social control there. Yeah. You know, and, and you're right. There's the elite that decides the fate of all. And uh, the and and yet you also have to ask how much the the elite is essentially symbionts pulling the puppets right. strings. Yeah. Uh, so yes, there is very much that. Um, 
but you know, it's a lot of societies. I mean, in Bajor had a case system before the Cardassians came. Mm -hmm. uh, they only set it aside because they had to mount a resistance movement. Yeah. And as soon as they, they, they got back their independence, they started discussing bringing it back. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not great. So, so uh, <laughs> you know, we, we are very, and, and, and the very, uh, you know, humans, I think, uh, although biologically we're less hardwired than we think we are, culturally we're more hardwired than we would like to be. And most people, once they get to adulthood, unless they happen to choose a vocation that lends itself to questioning, like science, mm -hmm. or, some or art for that matter, uh, sort of... Uh, petrify in some ways. They do not like to have their certainties questioned, unless, of course, some enormous event happens to them personally to shake those certainties. And and coming back to where we are today, I think some of what we see comes from that particular human attribute. Mm -hmm that we really do not like to change our minds once we've made it up. I mean, you know, the, the, the I've made my, my mind, don't confuse me with facts. <laughs> right. <Okay>. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. Well, um, there's, I, I'm not even halfway through the list of things that I wanted to talk about with you, but we, we've gone on for a little while. So uh, we'll have to have you back to talk again in the future. But thanks so much, Athena, for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. And I will be happy to talk more about this because you're right. There's a lot of things to discuss. It's such a huge topic. And I love talking about the scientific principles, such as they are sometimes, uh, behind shows like this, <laughs> and examining the science in the science fiction. That That's really fascinating. Uh, can you tell people where they can find you online? Uh, online, my personal site is uh, starshipreckless.com. That's my personal site that has my blog. Uh, and if they want to reach, to look at what my press does, it's candlemarkandgleam, one word, dot com. Uh, and there, basically, I, it's a, a tiny press that um, publishes uh, good science fiction and fantasy uh, that is literary quality and is not, and I try, my, it's not parochial. We have been lucky enough to attract names like Melissa Scott. Mm. Um and uh, so I'm hoping that if luck stays with us uh, and if my strength does not give out, that we will continue to do that. And I wanted to mention, too, the, your science fiction anthologies that you edited, uh, The Other Half of the Sky and To Shape the Dark, which both focus on female protagonists in sci-fi settings. Yes, and in, in to shape the dark of the two, the first was the, the other half of the sky is basically... Uh, women in societies that treat them as wholly human. Mm -hmm. To Shape the Dark is not just, it's women scientists, again, doing science not as usual, because a lot of science in the West is looked as this heroic, alone individual. Oh, yeah. But scientific research is a collective mm -hmm. enterprise. It requires a significant amount of, of cooperation. And also... It, it uh, depends a good deal on informed hunches. It, it actually um, rewards epiphanies. You know, the biggest moment in, for a scientist is when all these 
seemingly disparate random pieces fall together and you see this pattern that you didn't see before. I mean, this is an amazing moment. It has happened to me once or twice. And I have to tell you that it feels like nothing else. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, it sort of rewards you for, you know, the long hours, the difficulty, the frustrations, you know, the constant uh, search for, for grant money, mm-hmm. the failures. Um, it, it's, it's just amazing when it happens. And 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 I I consider scientists, you know, the the astrogators of humanity. You know, they're the ones who never sleep. Sure. The ones who are always in the observation in the observations uh, posts. You know, watching as as we journey through the dark, and that's why I call that one to shape the dark. And then uh, this June, if all goes well, I will be bringing a third anthology called. Um, retellings of the inland seas that basically transmutes uh, myths and stories from the Mediterranean and the Black Sea Mm. into, you know, because this is a a, a mythology that everybody thinks they know because it's a foundational part of the Western Western culture and civilization. But I think that has robbed it of, of its depths and nuances. So I wanted to elicit stories that brought back how exciting and timeless it is and and how it can still be uh, sort of a compass for the future. Okay. So that is coming, is the third of the Feral Astrogator series that started with the other half of the sky. Okay. It's going to be coming out in late June. Thanks again for speaking with me. Thank you and uh, all the best. And I hope we can talk again. Yeah, me too. Hey, Trekkies, I'm Caliban. And I'm Gooey Fame. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Backtrekking. I thought that we were going to say it together. Oh, Backtrekking. <laughs> do you want to do it again? Just just don't worry about it. Every week, we look at the real-life inspirations behind classic Star Trek episodes. The original series, Next Gen, DS9, Voyager, and more. And we're examining the actual events, stories, and concepts that they're based on. Join us as we go trekking through sci-fi history. You know, we have a time machine. Let's go back and do the intro again. Hey, Trekkies, I'm Caliban. Backtracking! God damn it!